0: Is talking to Santana like kind of one of your top, top dream interviews?
1: You know, it's difficult because I know too much. (laughs) You know?
0: Like how do you not sound like a stalker know too much? Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or how to make the conversation accessible to everybody who doesn't know as much as, you know, diehard Santana fans do. Right. That's a little difficult because there's... You know, he's a complex guy and there's a long career and it's sort of like Duke Ellington where you can like have different aspects of his career based on what year. Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, all of those people, in fact, some of the people that he actually admires, it's that way. You got to think about where you want to dip your toe in.
0: It was really cool, I think, to get that sense from you because I feel like up until now, a lot of the people we've interviewed have very much been like, a lot more in my lane or like people I'm a little more nervous about interviewing and you were like you were a total kind of fangirl about this one. <laughs> I was yeah. like you would be like nodding along, you're like, Yeah, 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 everything you saying and I was like, totally, but also like what exactly does this mean?
1: <laughs> you know, this this is like, you know, almost fifty years of, of hearing him talk like that and eventually as a fan, It was lost on me until I myself started doing more research and work on mindfulness and things like that. And then it all started to make sense. Like, oh, now I hear what he's saying.
0: So it's like you're getting to know him in a whole new light too, even as someone who's a huge fan.
1: You don't need that to understand the music, although it helps, but to understand the language. You know, people who who are are deep in thought like that, that's how they talk. Mm -hmm. They talk at 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 a different level. And I love the fact that you came to it from a position of wanting to know more. That gave him an opportunity to be a teacher
0: Mm
1: -hmm. in a way that that was never part of the conversation in the three or four times that we've interviewed him on the show.
0: Yeah, I really am one of the uninitiated, but I got to say, I was all up in it afterwards. I was like Caravan Sarai on repeat, like in my feels, (laughs) like so meditative, like wow, I'm just like, reaching this other plane of mindfulness.
1: And it's hard to separate that from the fact that, you know, he's an icon, well over 50 years performing. He's played on every continent. He's so respected in the music world. Generally, he's respected within Latino communities, plural, for all that he represents for so long. There's that part of him that's like almost awe-inspiring, like, wow, this is this is a big guy, right? I mean, he he knew Hendrix, he knew Miles Davis. I mean, that's that's a, a connection to history. But then there's the other part of him that we talk to him about.
0: That is a unique gift to keep being able to reinvent and to keep being able to to bring something new and and quite revolutionary, honestly, to the table is really. Well, wow, I guess that that's what makes him one of the greats, right?
1: I think so. I think so. And I think that that's why, going back to this record in 1972, the 50th anniversary of Caravan Sarai, which was the launch of his spiritual path musically and, and personally, it took a really big career risk to do this. He lost a lot of fans in the short run, but eventually it contributed to his longevity. You're listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras.
0: And I'm Ana Maria Sayer. Let the chisme begin. The life, the
1: You know, when I told a friend of mine that we were going to have a conversation with you about your spiritual journey, she told me that back in the 70s here in D.C., when you were performing under the name Devadip Carlos Santana, she and two friends of hers uh, snuck backstage after the show somehow and ended up meeting you. And she said that you guys, you sat cross-legged on the floor and talked about things like higher consciousness. And she said that it it made such an impact on her that she remembered it like it was Yesterday, we want to talk to you about that journey this week on Alt Latino, but let's go back even further. Where was Carlos Santana's spirit in March of
2: 1972? I was probably creating the music from Caravan Surai with Michael Street. We were probably discussing the flow, the sequence, and the making of it. You could feel that Greg Raleigh and Neil wanted to do their own thing, which is like journey, and we wanted to discover more things about Miles Davis and Weather Report and McCoy Tyner and Alice Coltrane and John McLaughlin. In 1972, we were in the process of giving birth to a whole new side of Santana. It was new to us. A lot of people were scratching their heads because they thought I lost my mind, you know? <laughs> like, what are you doing this? Because, you know, we want you to play more Abraxas and more, you know, and I said, well, we already did that, you know, and I need to expand ascend, transcend, extend, and ascend, you know. But they didn't understand that at that time. They just wanted what they wanted. And I says, well, you know, I wasn't born to please you. I was born to please my spirit and my soul and my, my light. And this is something that I said to my mom when I first started. I says, you know, mom, someday I'm going to play my own music and people are going to pay me to play what I want to play. And she she scratched her head and she goes, Pobrecito de mi hijo, you know, he lost his mind. You've been smoking too much weed, you know. (laughs) And and I'm like, thanks for the encouraging words, Mom, you know. I said, but I'm going to play what I want to play, and if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. I want it to be so that I play life, and my menu is no menu. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to cook what I want to cook, and I hope you're hungry because it's going to be delicious. But if you just want me to be like Taco Bell or McDonald's, that ain't going to happen, you know. I'm not going to be a one-trick pony. And so a lot of people were confused, almost angry, because I wasn't giving them another Abraxas or another third album or a first album. They were like, well, there's not even a single. I says, okay, I agree with you. So, but I'm growing as a person. I can look myself in the mirror and I'm happy with what I see and who I am.
0: I'm curious, like, what was stirring inside of you in, in your heart, in your soul at that moment that caused you to pivot? You were like, fuck it, I don't care what the label says, what anyone says. You've had all this success. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to do what I, I want to do. What
2: happened inside of you to, to change that? I think they called it my first career suicide. <laughs> you know?
0: Your yeah, first. That's what they call it.
2: <laughs> like my, well, I've done many of them. <laughs> But I don't call it career suicide. <laughs> I just call it dancing with the unknown and unpredictability. And it takes a lot of courage to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Because people say, well, you're going to lose your fans. I go, well, maybe they were never my fans then. Hmm. You know, because if they're really my fans, they will accept me for my growth and not for who they want me to be.
1: That period of time in the record itself are well known among your fans and among the people who who study music as a point where... You started an inward spiritual journey and some of the stuff that you were reading, taking cues from like what John Coltrane was doing with Eastern philosophies and stuff. How did you get turned down to all of that stuff that was happening and that marked those initial days of your path?
2: Just by being in San Francisco, San Francisco was the epicenter of everything. You know, you can hear Mungo Santa Maria or John Coltrane, Robbie Shankart, you know, The Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix. Tito Puente, Rebarretto, you know, so to me just being in San Francisco, it was natural, normal to play life in instead, instead of being a Latino that plays Latino rock. I don't see myself like that. That's too limiting for me.
0: So this was perhaps not your first exposure to like religion and, and spirituality growing up. In a Mexican household, was religion an aspect of that experience? You mentioned your mommy here. Like, what what was that like for you growing up? Was it present?
2: It was very natural and normal to convince my mom that I was done with the Catholic indoctrination, brain tattoo, mental slavery, you know, with the concept of sin. I was like, Mom, that doesn't make any sense to me since I was a child. So I'm going to look for other forms of how to connect with God, whether it's like through Buddha or Krishna or Allah or Rama. And I love Jesus, but he's not the only path for me. You know, mm. I'm 75 years old. This is what I learned. There's a big difference between primitive Christianity and Christ consciousness. See, Christ mm. consciousness is all inclusive. Primitive Christianity is like, if you don't do it my way, you can go to hell. And I'm like, whoa, that's really a uh, spiritual of you. But see, there's a difference between religion and spirituality. Religion is Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. It's a business, okay? It's a business of selling fear and division. Spirituality is like rainwater. It's pure. And everybody is worthy to be in the center of God's heart. That's why I gravitated to spirituality, and I was down with religion. Because to me, religion seemed almost like a pimp kind of mentality, you know? Like they pimp you into do it my way, you know, I'll protect you, you know, from, it's rough up there in the streets, but I'll protect you, but you gotta work for me kind of thing, you know, and I'm like, no, I don't think Jesus would say that. I think you guys twisted what he said and who he is. And so, you know, a lot of people to this day, they see me as like an anti-this or anti-that. I'm not anti-Christ. Real Christ consciousness is all-embracing. See, I say it like this. God created the world round so we can all have center stage. God Mm -hmm. created... God created a circle of love so vast no one can stand outside. So I have a different perception of it. When you embrace spirituality, the first thing that goes out the window is fear. You know, you dismiss it like like polvo, like dust in your in your and your shoulders, like get away from me, you know. My light, my spirit, and my soul are immutable, indestructible. I say this before many times, you know, you can look at the devil, Satan, and Lucifer in the eye and say, I got God's love. What do you got? And that immediately disappears like nothing that it is. The light is not afraid of shadows. And so immediately the music became more profound. You know, it's just that we have to present it. Like, how are you doing it right now? When people read this interview or hear this interview and they say, oh, it makes sense to me now why his music is so universal and all-encompassing and appealing beyond time and gravity, you know?
0: Did you always feel that way? Did you always feel, you know, that sense of spirituality and that sense of, I guess, your your rightness in your spirituality, your kind of, like, empowerment within it? Or was there a moment where that came to you?
2: It was always there, but I think that with the help of ayahuasca, peyote, LSD, it made it more easier, EST, to say, primero soy espíritu, you know, and después lo que tú quieras. But I didn't come here to please pendejos, you know. I came here to really serve God, you know. And so my mom goes, why do you have to say it like that? You know, you were doing so good. And I'm like, because a lot of pendejos, if I don't do what they say, they get angry, you know. And I'm like, I can't live like that. I don't wake up to try to please people who they don't even know how to please themselves because they're not that profound. They're deep as a spoon, they're shallow hollow, and they want me to walk the way they walk? I don't think so. They want me to dress the way they dress? I don't think so. Like you, I am an individual, and I I thank God for my uniqueness, individuality, and authenticity. That gives me a lot of courage and confidence.
0: be right back to alt latino and our conversation with santana
2: this message comes from npr sponsor state farm with budgeting comes the possibility of giving up some of the things you enjoy for instance you might be looking at your expenses thinking you're going to have to give up streaming music or pass on the next three-day music festival well state farm has options like ensuring your ride and your home with surprisingly great rates on both these good neighbors don't think you should have to give up what you love for great insurance. So for surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today.
1: We're back with Carlos Santana here on Alt Latino. When I think about that era musically, and when you think about the last track you hear on the Santana 3, and then the opening sounds of Caravan Sarai with, with Mother Nature, with the crickets, and then Hadley Kellerman playing the saxophone,
2: that is, that's a
1: major sound shift.
2: Well, yeah. First thing I is, I want to open up with crickets. Oh, crickets? <laughs> yeah, crickets. It's the sound of Mother Nature at night, serene, cooing you like it's all good. Cricket, 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 you know? And we did it. When Michael and I embarked into this, we immediately became magnets, and we attracted Armando Peraza and Dougie Rauch and Hadley Callum and Richard Komode and Tom Costa, you know? So we were able to create the music we wanted to because we had the players. You know, this is the lesson that people can learn from what Santana is saying. Once you focus on the potency of your gratitude, then your attraction becomes really, really intense. Then you can attract the universe to give you what you want and more. So we were not afraid. You know, the greatest compliments that I got at that time came from Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and Miles. Everybody were like, yeah, Santana, this is the direction, man. Because I constantly learn from them, but then they started learning from us as well, you know.
0: What did harnessing the potency of your gratitude mean for you at that time? I mean, that that's like such a incredible set of words to use, and I'm really curious what you mean by that.
2: See, here in Las Vegas, I live here in Las Vegas, but I don't believe in luck or chance or fortune. You know, I believe in grace. And by grace I'm able to focus when you focus on something, you're increasing the potency of your attractions. The more you say gratitude, deep appreciation, and thankfulness, the more universe reads you and floods you with 100 times more what you got.
1: You've said that The Caravan Surry was the first album that you needed to listen to from beginning to end, the way the tracks flow in and out of each other. What was the intention? What was the idea? Where did you guys get that idea from?
2: Well, the other albums like that were Marvin Gaye, "What's Going On," probably Pink Floyd, Darker Side of the Moon," two or three albums from the Beatles. We call it a concept. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a novel. It's not just one song. Nowadays, people just do one song, and the everything everything else is kind of like disposable. But when you listen to "What's Going On," Marvin Gaye, the whole thing is outside of time, you know. So we wanted to create something like that, and we did it. I didn't care about the critics, what they were going to like stamp it and and give it the approval. Like I don't need permission or approval from anybody to do what my light tells me to do.
0: I feel like you listen to the record, and it kind of feels like you're you're on a bit of like a hero's journey in a way. Like I feel like the guitar is a bit of the main character, and you're you're going on through all of these different waves of feelings and emotions. and I'm just curious because talking to you now, you sound so enlightened and you sound so sh- assured and you, f- it feels like you know exactly where you're at spiritually and emotionally. And at the time, like, were you seeking in writing this album? Like, what Were you searching for something or were you as, just as confident then as you are now?
2: I was just as confident. And thank you for asking that. At that time, I identified more with being a seeker. I identify now with being a founder. I find anything that I want is right in front of me or inside me. So I don't have to seek anymore, you know. I just have to close my eyes and hear it and then play it. It's not outside of me. This is how I connected with my wife Cindy. She prayed for me, I prayed for her. This is the key words that people can understand from this whole interview. If you concentrate on your belief and your trust, trust and believe, you're there. You know, that's enlightenment. That's like you have a deep awareness of your own light, your own divinity. For those people who say, well, only Jesus is divine, and I go, okay, that that works for you, go ahead, try it out. But see, I can see Christ consciousness in everyone. So we all have the capacity to push that button in your heart, and voila, you receive an avalanche of abundance. For me, since the beginning, it's always been, since I was a child, my imagination is really powerful, you know, and it transcends what's in front of me. My imagination is more vibrant and stimulating than anything on any channel of television. Most people, they're just reading a, a cue card anyway, at the teleprompter. I don't get paid to read teleprompters, you know. <laughs> I don't, you know. I read my heart, and I read my light, and that takes me further than whoever's writing whatever they're writing on the teleprompter for me to say. That gives me a different kind of a edge and freedom.
1: Are there any particular tracks that
2: you remember fondly or that stand out to you from the album? Song of the Wind. Neil and I, when we played Song of the Wind, I was living in Montalpais in San Francisco, in uh, Mill Valley. I was driving and I would listen to the first rehearsal that we did. And I just started sobbing. I, don't, I didn't even know why. I said, why am I crying, you know? Because it was the end of that Santana, you know? The
1: first version of the band.
2: Yeah, first version of the band, you know, it was over, there was no way to put it back together because Greg was on a journey (laughs) to be with Journey and so does Neil and they didn't want to participate in the kind of music that Michael Shreve and I wanted to do. So I cried because it was time to say goodbye. There might be other moments when we get together and stuff, but this particular vision and mission is done.
1: Where do you put this record in your decades long career? How do you consider this record?
2: It was a great love affair between the intangible and the tangible. It was the first love affair with going for something, especially when people tell you not to do it and you shouldn't do it. You know, the forbidden song, you know, kind of thing. I don't look at any of the albums like this or that because they're all my children. <laughs>
0: I was telling Felix as I I was listening all the way through the other night, I was doing so on a run. And I was saying that I just felt so immediately dropped into like this mindfulness, just listening to it. I was like, I just feel like I'm so centered and in this moment. And there's something so timeless, I think, about a record that can do that for you. But I also think that now in in the world that we're living in presently, people are having a lot more conversations about spirituality and mindfulness and in relationship to that mental health and all of those things. Like, where do you see this record and what it does for people and the energy that it holds? Like, where do you see it sitting in today's world where we're more open about talking about these things?
2: It will always be an invitation to the best part of you. The part that is like, you can't stain it. You can't burn it, you can't drown it. Again, immutable. There's a part of you that's immutable, indestructible. And we didn't know it then, but Michael Shreve and I, we were tapping on music that the Beatles were doing, kind of like, we were talking about the space, you know. And so George Harrison was doing it already, and so does Pharaoh Sanders. You know, Coltrane, definitely. Later on, Bob Marley. It's interesting that we were playing songs in 1969 and 70, talking about Toussaint L'Ouverture and Incident of Nishibor about a black revolutionary general that beat up Napoleon's army. You know, this is 1970. In Haiti, he's a Haitian ha- revolutionary.
1: In Haiti, Haiti. Revolutionary. yeah, yeah.
2: I'm sure that Bob Marley knew us, you know, because Haiti is not that far from Kingston, Jamaica. We, like Bob Marley, gave birth to world music. And what is world music? It means todo está ahí, you know, Apache, Comanche, Cherokee, you know, Aborigine, river dance, and uh, square dance, you know, all of it. It's just that revolvemos los huevos diferentemente, you know? Like, for example, when you listen to a polka, upa, 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 which is kind of a lot of mariachi music like that, but if if you listen to the way Jamaican people do it, it's called ska, The specials, Rudy, you know, so I learned to embrace all of the music. This is how it started for me. I was living in San Francisco in the Mission, and they invited us to a una quermes in San Jose. It was some kind of picnic or something. And when I got out of the car, I heard three music at the same time from the park. Mariachi music, musica tropical, because it wasn't called salsa yet, and rock and roll music. You know, I heard it all of it at the same time, and I went, ah, okay, I see. And that, for me, became like a revelation that I can combine all the colors, and it would work. You know, combine Tito Puente with B.B. King, that's what Black Magic Woman is. And Otis Rush, and Wes Montgomery, and Peter Green. We've been doing this for a while before we even knew what to call it. To me, what I do has never been a job or work. It's always been a gift. I can't believe I get paid to do what I love to do, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Which is like (laughs) awesome, you know? I know the feeling, bro. Órale, gracias, man.
0: What was most striking to me, honestly, was just like how unwavering he was in his confidence about all of these things. Like he is, I think by far, the most self-assured artist we've ever spoken to and that he was just like so sure of where he was at and his spirituality and the level of connection and almost like enlightenment that he had, had reached. And he didn't really point to a moment where he was lost or he was unsure, which I think is like... A very rare thing, and I wonder if he has consistently been that way and felt that feeling, or or maybe, you know, it's it's a tad bit of rewriting history at a certain point in your life, you know, where you, you forget about the uncertain moments.
1: Going back to his memoir and, and then some of the interviews that I've, I've read, he has been consistent about that. I need to change my life. There's too much going on, too much excess, very much like Farruko talked about when we interviewed him. There's too much excess going on. I need to change my life, and the only way I'm going to do it is if I do this. My understanding of that history is that there was never any wavering, that this is exactly what he needed to do. So that made sense to me.
0: But in order to feel as though you have to make a change, there has to be a point, at least I think, where you felt differently. I don't know. I mean, what is there to change if you've been consistent your whole life?
1: Maybe just in terms of understanding that The life you're living is a dead end. And I think that might have to go along with what he was doing musically because before those guys created it in those first three records, it didn't exist, right? That sound, there is a certain single-mindedness. There's a certain, like, I'm going to move forward on this and just see what's out there and just keep creating as a member of the band, as an individual. So there's already this sense of purpose, this, like, I'm moving forward on this no matter what.
0: He's really a fascinating, not just musician, but really uh, as an individual, a really interesting person.
1: And there's a, there's a parallel to how that comes out in his music. As you mentioned, you were swept up in the majesty or, or the mystique or the feelings or the feels, <laughs> as you guys say these days, right? You were caught up in the feels of the album, the caravan survival we were talking about. And there's a lot of that specifically in John Coltrane. Because he, he was a seeker. He was seeking out Eastern philosophies, new ways of life, new ways of thinking, all of that stuff. And that came out in his music. I think there's a direct parallel. It's one of the few artists that you can make that same connection, you know, in the world of, of pop music that's outside of jazz in Santana's music.
0: That'll do it for this week's show. You have been listening to Alt Latino. Our editor is Hazel Sills.
1: Our audio editor is Ron Scalzo.
0: Our amazing PA is Fee O'Reilly.
1: And the person who keeps us all in control is Grace Chung.
0: And of course, as always, thanks to the big jefe, Keith Jenkins, VP of Music and Visuals.
1: I'm Felix Contreras.
0: I'm Ana Maria Sayer.
1: Thank you so much for listening.